Welcome, everybody, to the Beyond Red and Blue podcast. I am your host, Bo Richards, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Dan Humphrey. Hey, hey, hey. This is podcast number 11, and it is election week. Or should we say post-election? Let's say election week, and then once we know the results, it'll be post-election. I like that. I figured next week we probably still won't know, and then we can... Or maybe if we do, we can call it post-election then. Yeah, that works. So the purposes of our podcast today is simply to kind of go over, rehash, discuss some of the things that we have heard and seen, both related to the election itself. And then there's probably some things we can go over that are maybe not even really related that have also occurred in the news recently. Um, I had a few things, if we get to them, that I do find quite interesting. Um as of today, which is a Wednesday, uh, there is, as of yet, no results. It's still undecided. Um, what are your thoughts so far? What do you think? Uh, what are you thinking? Uh, I will say so far, it's been calmer than I expected, mm-hmm. which is good. Uh, see, where are we sitting here? So I got the live feed up and at the race to 270, meaning 270 electoral votes needed. To win this here election right now, Joe Biden is at 248 and Trump is at 214. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's been like that for a few hours, I think. Yeah, yeah. And if you listen to the pundits, uh, it's it's a very close race in terms of how they're predicting certain you know swing states or battleground states or whatever it is they're calling them. Um, so, yeah, it's, uh, it's still anybody's game. Mm-hmm. Apparently, Nevada is not going to be giving out any updated numbers until tomorrow at like 9 a.m. or something Pacific time. Uh, And it is quite likely that Nevada will be a a deciding state. So if you look at all the rest of them that are um, yet to be official, but leaning in a particular direction, you got uh, Georgia, North Carolina, and Pennsylvania. Those are Trump states, most likely. So... Pennsylvania's leaning Trump, is that right? Currently, yep. I, I thought it was maybe it was early yesterday. I didn't watch much of it yesterday, but I, I, I do remember at least at some point people were thinking that Biden might close out Pennsylvania, which would make it almost impossible for Trump to get reelected. Yeah, and, and still could. So if it if it comes down to Trump getting Georgia, North Carolina, and Pennsylvania, and then Biden getting Nevada and Michigan. That's where Nevada becomes the deciding state. It's only six electoral votes, but that would be enough to get him over the top. If, on the other hand, Biden takes Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. that's effectively a done deal. If I understand the math correctly. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of where we're at with that. So Pennsylvania is a big one. Nevada is a big one. Pennsylvania is probably the bigger, sure. depending on which way that goes. But if Trump gets it, that's it's not a lock for him. But if Biden gets it, apparently that's pretty much a lock. Yeah. So we'll see how that goes. I would imagine, and I actually wouldn't even blame either Biden or uh, Trump for this if they decided to do it, but that a couple of re- recounts will be requested. Oh, yeah. I guess Trump's already requesting a recount in Wisconsin. Sure. It's Wisconsin. under 1%. And I, I mean, I yeah. people are probably, I haven't read anything about that with Wisconsin in particular, I just I haven't seen how close everything was, and I'm sure people are probably angry that he's doing it. But I mean, we have a one percent rule for a reason, and it's like this is an election. 
You, yeah. Oh, yeah. you know, that seems reasonable to me. Some of the other stuff that Trump has been saying seems unreasonable and divisive. Um, but unless there's actual proof to back up some of his claims about stopping votes and stuff, but, um, and then maybe it's warranted, but it's like, well, if you're under the 1% margin, that's well within for a recount. It's like, you might as well do your diligence. Yep. You know, that's 30, you know, in a, in a, in a state, 30, 40,000 votes swing, isn't that big of an issue when you got 10 million people, mm-hmm. right. Or whatever Wisconsin, I don't know how many Wisconsin has, but like votes get miscounted. They get, you know, they don't get counted at all. Like you go, the stuff happens. And so it's, you might as well exercise that right. And I would, I would expect both to do so honestly. Sure. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, Trump already said that his effectively, his lawyers are all lined up and ready to go. Yeah. You know, the strike of midnight last night. They're they're ready to go in and fight as hard as they can. So sure. And again, don't blame them for that. Like some of the stuff I'm not entirely sure is warranted, but it's still, you know, you're you're gonna do what you got to do, and uh, um, I think last night at like two a.m., Trump was still awake for some reason. I guess it'd be five a. You know, it was two a.m. at the White House, so it was like eleven a.m. here or p.m. Yeah, p.m. here. Sorry, <laughs> and he was uh, not only did he claim that he had won already, but he he said that, um, and I'm paraphrasing, but basically due to what he perceived as actual voter fraud and votes being counted after the fact that they and they shouldn't have been counted. Um, he didn't think that voting should continue in certain states. And, yeah. But there's, near as I can tell, there's like literally, there's like a, not a shred of evidence to support this potential voter fraud. No. I can understand the thought behind it. It's like you really want to win an election, so you open up ballots that were postmarked late or got in late after the deadline that sort of thing and it's like oh i mean it's it's not a huge leap to think that that might occur but if there's no evidence of it for the president to stand up and declare victory in the middle of the night and then claim that right. states shouldn't count votes because they're going to pad votes for biden it's like you know and that's kind of the same old rhetoric that we hear from from trump right it, it follows that divisive line of there's this conspiracy and, you know, this absolutist take of, you know, everything is against me. It's just, it's in line with his narrative. It has, sure. it has nothing to do with actual facts or anything like that. It's no. just, this is how he's running his campaign, which has been surprisingly successful. Um, no matter what happens with this election, he got himself elected in 2016, may very well do it again. Um, and just the fact that it's so close means he's got a ton of supporters and supporters and his strategy works for him, yeah. which is a commentary on politics in and of itself, but uh, no surprises at all with what you know Trump said and what he's doing. Oh, not like at that. all. Like, yeah, this but is no, what we it, expected. No, I actually, from what I've been able to tell, because I, I didn't really watch much of anything last night. Um, I didn't read. I read a couple of articles and stuff, but not really about stuff he had said. It seems as if he's been quite tame compared to what I would have expected. Because I expected this kind of behavior, yeah. but I expected more of it. I expected to hear him call everywhere and make more and more outrageous claims about fraud and just whip every everyone up into a frenzy as like a last-ditch effort to just confuse the shit out of the public. And it seems as if he's been more quiet than, than that. 
much more toned down than than normal. Which yeah, I, I am sure. surprised by. I, I, he might know. just be tired. <laughs> so I listened to part of. I actually had a hard time finding the whole White House clip where he like talked about how he won and stuff, and I I was able to find cut ups of it, um, and he sounded exhausted. Just his voice was like two octaves lower than normal. You get that when you're like super sleepy, mm-hmm. and he he just sounded drained. I mean, he went to like 14 different cities in like 72 hours. Yeah. And it's like, I'm sure he's also old. Mm-hmm. I'm sure both him and Biden are just exhausted. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it'll be interesting. I, I apparently the, um, the Democrats are, uh, internally are quite upset with themselves because a, the election, the general election is not going how they initially thought it would. I think a lot of them actually expected to turn a couple of states that were red, and they kind of they expected more of a landslide. I'm sure some of the more um, risk averse members of the Biden's uh, campaign were like, "No, no, no, this could be tough." But I think they really expected like a shift mm-hmm. in the public that didn't really manifest itself in the general election or hasn't really seemed to. Um, and then on top of that, they, there wasn't a, a blue shift in the Senate or the House. Like, I think the actual, I think the House in particular, which the Democrats control, I think they actually lost seats. Did they officially lose seats? Yeah, I saw that there was It's not a, over yet. So, change yeah, yeah. There, there's, it's, um, last I checked, um, I think they were down like five seats. So they still had, they still, they were still had a margin. They were still in the majority. Okay. Um, but they had like lost seven seats and then had usurped two uh, de- Republican seats. Um, and, so they're le- they still have a majority, but it's smaller, and so it's understandable why they'd be upset. But and I, I don't know with the Senate what's going on there. I didn't actually look up if uh, how the seats and things had, if there had been any changes or anything like that. But it was I, I thought it was very interesting um, that it seems throughout the uh, so first they're they're upset and they're calling for some people. I think anonymously, but so as not to get in trouble. But I think some people within the Democratic Party are calling for the um, the firing of like the Democratic chairwoman. I forget her name, but uh, she's mm. part, the acronym is the DCCC, and um, I forgot to type her name up. But because she's kind of the one who organizes all of this and like lets people know what to expect, and organizes in terms of like the campaign, or? organizes like. Uh, how what where how they're going to um i believe it's basically like what um what states and seats they're going to focus on when it comes to allocating resources okay right cuz um i'm sure people who are listening are aware of this but when it comes to most um to a the general election the presidents themselves and who stumps for them the people who like endorse them and then also when it comes to like the democratic and the republican national convention and like the little subsidiary um, areas that they have within that company that like allocate resources and help with media and all that stuff they don't help everyone equally and the presidents and the and whoever's running for president they don't go to every city of obviously but they don't go to every major city they don't even go to every state I forget what there was a couple of states that Trump even made a joke about he never goes to. And because they're, they're always going to pick like, I don't think Biden or Trump came to Washington. Nope. And it's like, why would you? Washington states voted Democrat since like, I'm pretty sure they've always voted Democrat, even when Democrats were 
pro-slavery. I think they just voted Democrat. I, I think it's kind of always been a democratic state, and I don't have the facts to back that up, but I know at least since the modern era, sure, yeah. they've been Democrat for sure. So it's been 70 years at least. But So they pick and choose like where they go and who they allocate resources to and who they do you know, uh, the DNC ads for and stuff like that. And so I think this woman's the, basically the head of that. She's like, okay, we need to focus on these. These are weak points in the Republican House, so we're going to try and push our guys and gals into taking their spots. And these people are safe, so we don't need to worry as much. And I think what happened is you know, they expected there to be this big public shift they saw a bunch of weak points in the Republican House and probably the Senate, and they expected to, to, to turn a bunch of them to get Democrats into those seats. And then it seems like kind of the opposite happened. And so that kind of falls on whoever that leader is, um, which is, I find very interesting. That well, you know, I would, go, oh, ahead. go ahead. I was just going to say, if I find it interesting that um, their apparent like the pulse of the country and what I guess the democratic elite felt was the pulse of the country or like two separate things. Big time, big time. Yeah. And that, um, Sam Harris had a, a brief little um, podcast or, or message on his, on his podcast there um, talking about how he finally it became clear to him the, the reason why people would be willing to vote for Trump. Like on the surface, I didn't read, I didn't hear, listen to that yet, but I saw um, a, a clip of it come up. Yeah, it's it's good. Um, the gist of it is, and we've kind of we've, we've heard this conversation before, but obviously Sam is is very good at articulating it. But the gist of it being, because Trump is who he is, warts and all, and unapologetic about it, mm -hmm. and the Democratic Party is the exact opposite when they yes. are the you know, the holier than thou elites telling you how bad you are and, and all the stuff that you're doing wrong, that does not resonate well with people. No. Uh, and a lot of people. I think that in combination with the new, the new society that we're all growing into, meaning um, how much of our life is online now, and with cancel culture being what it is, people are less likely to freely express their opinions. Yes. So that combination of people who are not going to be honest in polls or even take polls or anything like that, and the, the inordinate amount of noise that the radical left is making, all the, you know, the woke activists and stuff like that, um, it seems like they are a bigger presence than they actually are. Well, and the power that they wield, too. Right. They have inordinate amounts of power. But when it comes down to actual people in the physical world, um, their side is nowhere near as big as they thought. Yes. Right? If you can make a bunch of noise online and, and uh, discover and develop this power of being able to cancel people and all that, and, and, and the actual real-life effects from that, um, that group of people got the impression that they were more powerful or affecting more people than they actually were versus what we're seeing in the voting mm -hmm. um, where most people, when it comes down to, to, to privately vote for who they want to run stuff are saying, no, that's ridiculous. At least I can, you know, I don't know. They think they can relate to Trump or, or something. Um, but they're not, you know, Trump is not some elitist, 
although he is, but he's not some elitist that is telling them all the stuff they're doing wrong. He's basically just bragging and saying, look how awesome this is. Why don't you be on my team and I'll share some of the awesome, whether or not that's actually true. Um, but that's kind of his messaging. I think that's what's resonating with people. And there's a there's a bit of an acceptance in there. When the, the Democratic Party is telling you that you are guilty for the sins of your father mm -hmm. just because you're a straight white male uh, and there's nothing you can do about it except try to repent and repent and repent for the rest of well, your that life. Won't even, yeah, it won't even work. Yeah. Um, well, Trump's the exact opposite of that, obviously. And in a lot of ways, <laughs> that just resonates with more people. That people are thinking like, hey, I'm, you know, I'm in the Midwest. I'm, I'm not a racist. Um, and, but looking at what the Democrats are telling me that I need to do and I, I need to, you know, take this training and, and whatever, uh, everybody's guilty, it's just not going to fly. It's interesting. So, um, recently I read a book, it's how to have impossible conversations. It's by, uh, Peter Bogosian, who's a philosophy professor, assistant professor, I think, but a professor at Portland State University, and uh, by James Lindsay. Um, he's the founder of New Discourses podcast, and uh, he both of those two were two of the three members of the um, the Grievance Studies hoax, and mm -hmm. James is a, a mathematician, he's got a PhD in mathematics, and um, and they kind of compiled about, most of all of the literature about how to properly have conversations with people. They put it all together, and it's really good. One of the things they talk about um, repeatedly in the in the book is they go over the different ways in which um, people have conversations. And I don't remember all, there's like five or seven, I forget, but um, there, there's ways in which you can approach a conversation with somebody. Um, and when they said, one of the ways is uh, morality. Like the things that you believe, and like when you when I talk to you and you and I, you and I talk, or me and anyone, or you and anyone talk about stuff, about what they believe, one of the ways that people believe the stuff that they believe is they, they believe it morally. Like I may believe a lot of things because I read about facts. Like that's actually important for me personally. Some people don't care about facts. They care about feelings. Mm -hmm. Right. And so that's like a very low level, um, a low resolution difference between um, people who believe, let's say, in woke social justice theory and people who don't. There's just other things, but that could be a low resolution way of a lot of people believe feelings are paramount and lived experience is the actual paramount way of knowing. Right. And so this, a lot of, a lot of this critical race theory stuff and critical theory and all that social justice theory makes sense to them. Whereas other individuals who would prefer scientific reasoning and knowledge are like, that's, that's fine, but I want more, but it's the moral issue that gets everybody. And so what I see here is I see. I see a fuck who's an asshole and disgusting and says inappropriate <coughs> rhetoric and happens to be our president, but who doesn't judge other people for the decisions that they make. He may say rude things about people and he may call them names and he may be, you know, you, people can have plenty of arguments about xeno, his xenophobia or his racism or whatever, but he's unabashedly like, does whatever the fuck he wants. Yep. So, so you know where you stand with him. Whereas the other side attacks you morally. And it's like both are reprehensible. Like I don't really have much patience for someone who just runs around and is mean to people for no reason. 
except to maybe just to be an asshole. Like, it's not clear to me that he's actually a xenophobic, racist, you know, transphobic, you know, sexist individual. I, it's not clear that it's that or that he's just trying to just do it for the shock factor. Like, I don't know. Either way, it's still horrible. But at least he doesn't tell the public. He's like, if you don't believe me, you're morally wrong. And I'll give an example of this. What did Joe Biden say to um, Charlemagne, the guy? He's like, <laughs> if you don't vote for me, you you're ain't not, black. You're, ain't bla you're not black. And it's like, are you? <sighs> Whoops. Th that's literally the same thing. Like, there isn't any difference it, between that and if you don't believe me, you're morally wrong. Mm -hmm. In that context, it's the same thing. It's like black individuals who don't b believe in Biden don't I now aren't the one of the few things that they can like truly identify with because it's their skin tone. And so you identify with it usually pretty strongly. It's like that's just been taken from them or to use critical theory. It's been erased like Joe Biden just erased a bunch of the black community by saying that. No, tried to try to, you know, and it, it's <laughs> like I didn't vote for either of them. To be totally honest, I, I didn't vote for Trump or I did vote, but I did not vote for Trump or for Biden because I don't like either sides of that coin. But if those were literally the only two options that we had, I might move out of the country because it wouldn't be a democracy if we were only given them. <laughs> should have another choice, but I can understand why someone would not want to vote for a party that plays the moral card. Versus a party that doesn't, and that's the, which is weird because I don't I don't like Trump at all. Like I I would I have a, I have a hard time s separating those two things. But I think it's more wrong to play the moral virtue card than it is to just be a piece of shit. <laughs> well, and the irony guess, is is know. he's managed to align himself with the you know the the evangelical right. Yeah. Somehow, some way, those uh, the, the religious leaders are willing to endorse him. Yeah, even with just him being him. But it's it's Team Jesus, so he's our guy. You got to yeah. vote for him. Uh, that that fascinates me. The the uh, I don't know cognitive dissonance, I suppose, that has to be present in order for that to take place. Yeah, I think that most likely my, my presumption is that it's probably part moral and part they care about a couple of very particular things. Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> I w my assumption is that uber conservative Christians believe that they have the moral high ground, first and foremost. So anything outside of that doesn't matter it's like right. well, we have the moral high ground so whatever don't care about the rest of it but this is the person who's going to protect the things that we feel the strongest about regardless of what he does he can do his own thing we're the ones who are morally right i it honestly and this is just a connection i just made right now but i wonder if it's something similar to how like say um the left, the de Democrats in general, um, or even the Black Lives Matter movement feels about Antifa. They, they kind of reject Antifa as like this actual group, but they don't ever put them down and say what you're doing is wrong because mm. 
they're morally, they feel like they're morally correct. And these people are good for them in some ways because they do some things that they actually want to get done, which is create chaos and cause destruction and to help foment insurrection and bring about the downfall of patriarchy and some other things that we that are more radical we can get into. But I wonder if that's the parallel is, is that it's, if I have the moral high ground and I truly believe that I'm willing to hang around with morally reprehensible characters if they're willing to get things done that I want to get done. Sure. They're the necessary evil for me to get the things done that I want. And even if that goes against your own morals, yeah, somehow you fit that in your head, but it's them and not me. Like it's, it's a weird sort of, uh, I don't know. I don't know if necessarily cognitive dissonance is the right term, but it's, um, my assumption is it, 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 is that it's something like that where they're just like, well, I'm right. And, you know, these are infidels or whatever, you know, these are bar- the barbarian. They, they don't, they're not as conscious as I am. Like they're not as morally correct. They're sinners, whatever. And, um, I'll do whatever I can to save them. It also kind of reminds me of how a lot of, uh, colonizing uh, countries felt when they like went to other countries and then met mm, the indigenous right. peoples. Yeah. Savages. Yeah, but they actually felt that they were, you know, unlearned and, you know, they thought a bunch of, a lot of pretty bad things, but they wanted to, like, educate them with their ways of knowing and say, hey, like, we're, this this is like the enlightened way and it's correct and we need to, like, civilize you. And because what you're doing is backwards. We're going to save you from yourself. Yeah, this all sounds kind of like the same thing to me. I don't really see much fundamental difference between these lines of thought, which is ironic if that's actually what's going on from the left, because the left rails against the the notion of of colonialism. Like it's part of critical theory is post-colonial theory, which is trying to break apart colonial theory, which is trying to, which is to say you're trying to break apart how cultures were founded as a result of colonialism. Um, So that would be ironic. It's like a side tangent, like that actually sure. would be. But I, I, I would, I would, I'm probably gonna have to think more about this and flesh this out a bit more. But on the surface, it seems to me to be a very similar line of logic of, well, we have the right stuff, we're correct. Now, get in line or goodbye. Right. Whereas you know, Trump is just like, I'm gonna say whatever the fuck I want. I don't care. I just want people to do what they want to do. I don't even think it's that. I think it's uh, just stay out of my way. Maybe that's a better by, way to put it. Yeah. Yeah. By by every bit of evidence, um, he's a complete narcissist. Yes. Um, and that's and, why I'm not entirely sure that that he's actually like xenophobic or sexist or racist or anything. That's partly why is that it's, I'm not suggesting that he hasn't said things that are for sure, you know, phobic in some way, but it isn't clear to me that it's not just simply a means to an end for him, and he could care less. I think it's a blend of both. I don't think he sure. is. Um, I can see that. Yeah, like intentionally going after a specific, like you know, the Chinese or something like that, because he hates Chinese people. Yeah, it's because they are the enemy. Just because that's who he's competing with, and in, in, in some you know whatever the line of logic he's talking about, whether it's yeah. trade or what have you, but it's it, there is nothing other than winning for Trump. And if you are not on his team, you are the enemy. Yeah. And, you know, uh, 
anything goes. If you don't cheat, you're not trying. And he'll do anything and everything he can get away with. Yeah, and he's willing uh, and to push stuff the, that he yeah, can't, and he's willing to push the boundaries of that as hard as he possibly can. But I think it's it's the the motivation is strictly just to win, has nothing to do with benefiting or hurting any other group of people. It's either you're on my team or you're not. Yeah, and if you're not, then I'm going to do everything to dominate you. Right, exactly, so, and, and all of which is to say, Donald Trump does not care about any of us. No, right. Yeah. At all. I think that that's a fair assessment to make. And, but then again, to go back to kind of where we started at the top of this, like, I, I, I do understand why people would say vote him over Biden as a result, because you have two evils, which we've talked about before. This is utter shit that we're, most people are going to, most states, you actually can't, like, there's like a third option you can have, but it's, it's pretty restrictive on you can't just vote for whoever you want. Right. And so you're kind of just stuck with the two main primaries and you got two really shitty options. Mm -hmm. One of my friends who will remain nameless, but they said that for them, because they voted Democrat, they voted for Biden. And they said that, um, they had to look past the ideological issues with the party and to think about it like a chess game, like a moving a piece right. with the intention that few, later on down the road, I can get to an end game that's better, um, which was an interesting way to think about it. Um, but she, they use that phrase, the, I had to look past the ideological issues. And so I think it's even clear if, if, if they're representative of any part of the, say, the left in the country. I think people are very well aware that both the left and the right have ideological issues. And in particular, as someone who is kind of always identified as being on the left, I notice it more. There's a clear ideological problem with the left. And some people are having to, like, suck it up and move past those issues with the hopes that in the future it'll be better. And, like, that's that's where we're at. Yep. Is it's like, you know, check and pray, <laughs> or I guess you fill in the circle and pray, you know, yeah, like, yeah. it's like how you take a test when you haven't studied. You're just like, I'm just going <laughs> to guess the answers and hopefully the Scantron comes out yep. and gives me the best score. You know, I don't, I'm so angry that that's where both as a, as a, as a society, but also as a, the political duopoly is, I, I think has had more influence than people would like to admit in getting us there. Like, as you know, as a society, we do vote these people in. But the breadth of power that they control as, a, as groups, as political groups, is so large that I, I can't imagine that this was an accident. No, I think it's just a natural byproduct of the decay of a large civilization, to be perfectly honest. Yeah. Um, it's not, not particularly new. Um, Hmm. Had a thought and lost it. Anyway. No worries. Um, before we move on, uh, Sherry Bustos, that is the name of the um, the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee chairman. That was the woman I was talking about. She is the fifth ranking position among all House Democrats after the majority leader, the majority whip, the House assistant Democratic leader, and the Democratic caucus chairperson. Okay. Um, and so, what the heck is a whip? 
I don't know. I looked it up once a long time ago, and it, it didn't make Me sense. Me too. It didn't make sense then, yeah. and I forgot. But um, so my assumption is that the congressional campaign committee, the caucus chairman or whatever, is uh, um, they're the people who are going to organize the campaigns for everyone, right? That and so they're, they're angry. They, the Democrats, are angry at large because they didn't win as much as they thought they were going to. They're out of touch. They need to it, come to grips with that. <laughs> that was kind of the thing is that it it really struck me when I was reading through. I had read an article about it, and it's um, they just don't seem to have a finger on the pulse. And, and that actually doesn't shock me, right? So if we think about the ideological shift of the left since the 90s, right, um, when a lot of the stuff we've been talking about on our podcast uh, really started to take root in, to, in, in, in the public and outside of academia. Um, a lot of it, and it goes, goes back to morality, is, is a morality thing about how we're right. First off, it was all, it was all in college, in, in academia, and it was an echo chamber in academia. All, all the ideas and stuff were just bounced off of each other, and everyone believed. And if you didn't believe, you kind of got pushed out, and it just kind of echo chambered for 30 years. And then it started to disseminate into the public from the people who were learning it. And there was also a, a bottom-up a bottom approach from kids who were learning this sort of stuff in school from school teachers who had graduated and they were asking their academics about it when they got to college they're like no teach us more critical theory and so we had this kind of coalescence of that and then once they get out into the public they don't understand that a lot of people just don't a don't care or see through the bullshit even if they can't articulate it because what they've been told is that they're right they're morally right. Everyone else is morally wrong. And all of their objections prove that they're morally wrong. Like that's what I just explained white fragility. Yep. I literally just explained it. And so what you have is you have a whole bunch of people and it's probably not a lot of the actual men and women in the dem in, in power in the Democrats, like the, a large percentage of the house members or Nancy Pelosi. I, I highly doubt Nancy Pelosi in particular has any fucking clue what critical race theory is or cares. <laughs> um, Hillary Clinton, I don't think has any idea either. I, I would be shocked. Um, but I think it's, it's all the, the bureaucrats, the ones that they hire to flesh out their cabinets and then to flesh out the different departments of all the chair, all the committees and stuff, the HR departments, all this, they're all trained in this stuff, but they don't realize that they're kind of out of touch with the rest of the world because they spent so many years in echo chambers and then they went into a job where it was also an echo chamber. Mm -hmm. And so they're running into this problem where they're like, Oh yeah, we're totally right. Everyone we talk to is right. Uh, what's that? Um, it was, they talked about in the social dilemma. There's that, uh, um, the law or the rule or whatever. We're like everyone in your sphere, you hear, you only hear from like 200 people. It's all the, the number of people you can keep track of in your mind. Dunbar's number? Yeah. And so like you hear from only, you can only know like 200 people or whatever. And whenever you get feedback, if you get feedback from enough people in that, within that number, you think that it's a correct thing Yep. because all your friends <clears throat> believe it too. And so everyone else must also believe it. It's part of that problem as well. It's like all these individuals believe this stuff. All of their friends believe it. They all, they spent all their time in college, either just getting their bachelor's or getting a master's or PhD. So from four to 12 years in college or whatever, um, then they go into the workforce, and if it's not there, they implement it, and then they get people hired who also believe them, or they're working for people who believe it, so it's another echo chamber, and it grows, and they, everyone that they know, the spouses that they date, either believe it or they don't date them, 
right? Um, you know, they virtue signal on dating apps so that people know, mm-hmm. right? That's a, that's a big deal is like this whole issue of virtue signaling your, your, your feminism and your, and all that kind of stuff so that you can pick the right partners. You know, no liberal millennial wants to date a conservative. I think like 78% of, or something like that, 70, I think it's like 78% of millennials said that they would not date somebody who didn't have their shared political values, which is crazy to me. Um, personally, but, and so they're like, well, this is all going to work. You know, everyone we know thinks that this is correct. So we obviously have a pulse on America and everyone's pissed off at Trump because everyone they know is pissed off at Trump. And so there's going to be this huge shift and then it doesn't occur. And they're like, what the fuck? And it's like, maybe you should talk to conservatives or you should talk to moderates or you should talk to libertarians or maybe you should talk to the less radical versions or the less radical lefties the ones who are only slightly left or have always leaned left because since they've been alive the left presidential candidate has been nicer and less of an asshole than the right one you know like or maybe they just because that's why they voted or whatever because a lot of people they vote based on how nice somebody is sure it's actually really common it's like well i like obama because he speaks well Versus the other, whoever ran against him sounded like an idiot. So I'm going to vote for Obama. You know, like, I remember that was actually a thing for some people. Not a lot, but it was a thing for some people. They're like, I don't really know, but he sounds way more articulate and he's way nicer and he smiles more. There you go. People vote with their gut. Oh, yeah. Big time. I mean, to, to, to use modern day politics to find the best person to run shit. Any large large organization, whether it's a city or a state or an entire country, is similar to having a tennis match to figure out who's going to be the CEO of a financial company. What does a tennis match have to do with finances? Zero. Yeah. Has nothing to do with it. And and you can have a skill set that allows you to excel in politics and in campaigning and in winning elections and, and you know the metaphorical tennis game doesn't mean a damn thing about how well you'll be able to govern. What's the, uh, it's called Peter's Law, I think. Um, I'm going to butcher the whole thing, but roughly speaking, Peter's Law is that um, you, the individual will top out at the lowest level of incompetence. So um, Michael Scott from The Office is a good example of this. Um, He's actually the first one I thought about when I learned about this law, he was a phenomenal salesman. So what happens? He gets promoted to manager. He's a shitty manager, but he never gets promoted higher. But he doesn't get demoted either. Right. And so the Peter's Law... Broadly, Peter Principles, how I yeah, heard that. Yeah. yeah. Broadly speaking, how that functions is that individuals will, when something's really easy, they, they tend to overperform. And so they get bumped to something that's a little bit harder. And then they tend to get bumped and bumped until they get to a level where they're actually not competent, but it's slightly above where they would be very good, right? And so you're slightly out of your element. Yep. And um, that's actually, I think, where most people want to be, especially if they're driven, because then they'll try and work really hard at being good at it. The problem, though, is that you get a lot of people in positions where they're good at one thing and not at another, because just like you said, you get great politicians who are shitty presidents, because maybe the two things have nothing to do with each other. Exactly. You know, and it's, <laughs> yeah, right. And, and I mean, and that kind of makes sense. I, from what I understand, all Supreme Court justices are judges. Yes. Before they become a judge on the Supreme Court. Yeah. 
that makes sense to me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you would think. <laughs> Do that, you have any experience? Okay. Right. And so it would seem to me that you would want to find individuals who are pretty good at managing large governing bodies. That might seem like some versus just someone who was an attorney for 25 years yeah. and happened to win re-elections because he had a good committee. It's like there, there are a lot of different things that it takes to run a presidency. And yeah, it I'm, n- n- being a good politician doesn't necessarily have to be one of those. I, I, I don't think. I mean, or maybe it does. I Maybe we're wrong. Maybe that's all it takes. Um, I've, there's a I podcast out. <laughs> I don't either, but there's a podcast out. I, um, I think it's called Unpresidential. Um and this this girl, she uh, goes through um, some of the crazy, crazy, crazy things that old presidents have like had go on while they were in office, like like the this, this stuff that you probably didn't hear about when they were president because they're mm-hmm. absurd, you know, murders, multiple affairs, um, that kind of stuff, like debilitating health problems. Like JFK was basically comatose for four years. He was all fucked up. He was yeah. all fucked up. Like he was just on huge amounts of a. He, he had a doctor who prescribed him a cocktail of like seven different drugs that no one ever found out what was in them, and he literally couldn't function without it. Like he, he was just like on the floor drooling, unfunctional, and that's part. Um, what was it? The um, is he the one who did the Cuban Missile Crisis? Was yep. that him? Yep. That meeting, he was high during that meeting. Oh, for sure. Yeah. The dude, the doctor, like injected this shit with him like twenty minutes beforehand, and he like walked in and did this meeting. And um, whoever he met with, because I don't remember exactly how all that broke down, but whoever he met with noticed it and was like, like he was like not able to really articulate anything in the meeting. He just made an ass of himself. Managed to get it done, but apparently he just made a complete ass of himself in the whole situation. And luckily, we didn't go to a war. That was a close one too. You know, and it's like this crazy stuff like this. But all the presidents she went over, there were like four in succession. And they were all horrible, horrible people. All of them cheated on their wives multiple times. All of them had multiple mistresses. At least two of them probably actually murdered somebody. They all had debilitating health problems. I think one of the prerequisites to being president isn't being good politically. It's you have to be massively unhealthy. (laughs) JFK was thin, but he had... He grew up and was like a sickly child. He was kept out of school for years at a time. Like he had all sorts of problems from birth and it just plagued him his whole life. The other three that uh, that um, she went over before, I, um, I hadn't listened to in a while, but the other three were like huge and obese and had debilitating problems from drinking way too much and eating shitty foods and smoking too much and all, had, all were diabetic and had heart attacks and like other problems. And this is also like in the early 1900s. So the medicine was pretty bad but it's like i think that's the actual prerequisite is you just need to find super unhealthy people who have no <laughs> moral scruples and you can be the president that's a good start you know it's like that's all we need is just a, a corrupt fat guy <laughs> i would be very curious <laughs> who's on his second heart <laughs> and gives zero craps about being faithful to his wife yeah well at least uh, trump was up front about that i suppose yeah. i would be very curious to uh to hear what his cocktail is because there's you know the rumblings of a diet pill prescription back in the day blah blah whatever so it appears he is not opposed to taking some medication yeah and as old and decrepit as he is that dude's got a lot of energy so the fact that he can do this this kind of campaigning he's had some assistance i'd I'd be curious to hear what kind of high-end government stuff he can get his hands on yeah, me too. Um, 
I'm, I'm curious to see also like what kind of cocktails they got Biden on as well. Oh yeah. Yeah, for sure. He doesn't seem to have as much energy. So I, I mean, I don't know. Um, I think Bernie just has energy as another old guy who yeah. looks like he's dying. Like, I think he just has energy. I think he's kind of just always been a high energy. Some people just, they just never lose it. You know, they're just spry 70 year olds, Yep. you know, and um, Pedro Sauer's like that, right? He's 60, 67, 68. And he's, I mean, he fucking looks 50, but a lot of that's clean living. He doesn't okay. drink, eats super healthy and he's, you know, doing exercise every day. I don't think, these three politicians we're talking about do that, but <laughs> at least to the extent that, you know, old school jujitsu guys do, but yeah, not so much, but yeah, it's, um, yeah, it's upsetting. Did you hear about, um, I don't know who the lady was, but she was introducing, uh, Kamala Harris Mm-mm. and, uh, to like give a speech like yesterday and she's like, you know, I'm really proud to, uh, to announce uh, our, our next president of the United States, Kamala Harris. <laughs> Whoops. Well, yeah, we'll see how it goes. <laughs> Disclaimer for anyone listening, I have not yet checked to see if this is like a veri- was like a verified video or if it was like someone created it. Um, when I watched it, her voice and her like her mouth movements weren't synced up. So oh, right. it, yeah. it's entirely plausible that somebody just edited out the vice part. Yeah, of it. this the vice part. I, I I tried to slow it down to check, I, but it was it was far enough behind that I couldn't tell, um, and I didn't care enough to look into it any further. But yeah. um, that'd be funny if it actually is true. And then you know, she just introduced the, the VP as the president. <laughs> <laughs> I saw that I saw on Instagram. Someone was like, and now they're just being upfront with what they really want. You know, yeah. the Democrats said, uh, which wouldn't surprise me actually, but. Um, if that was the case, if they're just like, yeah, we're just, now that we think we're going to win, we're not even going to hide what, what we're actually trying to do. Cause there's genuine, you know, there's genuine concern, of course, or belief that, uh, Joe Biden won't even make it through the first term. And yep. Well, he'd be the oldest president ever, right? Yeah. 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 Cause he's 77. Something like that. Like Trump, President Trump's, uh, 73, 74. Old guys, man. Yeah, I mean, Joe Biden literally is at the exact life expectancy of, I think, the average male in in the world, or at least the U.S. I think it's the U.S., (laughs) but so, like, he should basically die any day now, statistically. His warranty is void at this point. Yeah, and so, um, but, yeah, that's an interesting theory, though, about um, how long it's expected he may, he may be in office so let me ask you this. What are your main concerns if either guy wins? So if Trump wins, what are your concerns there? And uh, same for Biden. If Trump wins, I don't have any. I'm not sure if really the concerns that I have are as a, a result of Trump. Like, I, I don't really listen to Trump. So, Well, like, no, I'm just saying if he wins this election— my concern would be, and like I said, this isn't really a, a Trump issue, but I, I'm, I'm genuinely concerned that I'm, I'm not sure I should say what is going to happen with the recent Supreme Court confirmation and what that's going to do for uh, reproductive rights for women. I'm actually genuinely concerned about that. I'm not as concerned about um, the repeal of the uh, Affordable Care Act or maybe 
taking parts of it away and then keeping it that's called something and and well i forget what it's called but you you can take parts of it out and then keep the whole thing find the whole thing constitutional they did that with the um it used to be mandatory you had to have affordable care act coverage or you'd get fined right yeah that was removed and so they can do more of that the the supreme court can or lower courts can i'm more concerned with the possibility that with another conservative judge it seems possible that say the, the rights to uh, the abortion rights may be removed um i prefer i might i haven't thought about this too much part of me prefers states rights versus federal rights i'd like governments to be as small as possible but there's also a problem with having say states control abortion rights because a large number of states are going to eliminate it and i think that women should have the right to choose and should have the ability to do the things that they feel is necessary for their bodies and so not allowing them that does seem to me to be a violation of their freedom and which would directly contradict states rights to determine if women can do that because some, some women can't drive across state lines to get an abortion right or drive 500 miles to do it like that sort of thing it could be tough sure. and so that would be it isn't a fear of that you know that directly affects me personally of course because i can't give birth but um i don't know if that's necessarily something that is predicated on Trump getting reelected. Um, it's just more of that's something that I actually genuinely fear. Um, outside of that, I haven't, the other big thing that I would fear, but again, I'm not, I'm not so sure that it's, um, this won't happen if Trump doesn't get elected, is more divisive ethno-nationalism. Because he's a divisive guy. So, sorry, not, not more divisive, more um prevalent ethno-nationalism right uh from the right because he's divisive he he's stirring up a lot of polarity amongst people and that's going to give that'll naturally give an amplified voice to you know right extremists it already has it already has we've seen the results of that in the last four years i'll give biden credit the uh he went on air live to give a little uh speech of some sort while we're still waiting for the result of the election. That's why well, I was a couple minutes late to the studio here. Um, it was a very brief statement, but I did like the tone of it in that he was emphasizing that if he wins, he's going to work just as hard for the Republicans as he does for the Democrats. There will be no more blue states and red states. It's just the United States, mm-hmm. uh, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I, that's a nice signal, you know? Sure. I, I, I like it because... Even if it's not reflected in policy, we have seen over the last four years what happens with the opposite type messaging coming from the White House yeah. and how that has emboldened actually problematic groups, like, you know, white supremacists and stuff like that. I think it's um, the perception trumps, no, no, or I guess baby pun intended there, it trumps the uh, actual accomplishments. Well, I mean, you say shit like stand back and stand by. That's just irresponsible. Yeah. I was talking to my girlfriend and her mom the other day about it. We got had dinner together and we we're just kind of chatting about things, about politics stuff. And like, I actually couldn't tell you with without prompting things outside of, I think Trump had a tax cut a couple of years ago that saved me some money every year on my taxes. But I, I don't know if I could, and then he removed that, uh, 
requirement for health insurance. I don't know if I could actually tell you the things that Trump has accomplished as a president. But like most people, I could probably at least rattle off what I've heard he's said and done that was inappropriate. And he makes all these claims. And I've heard other people sort of back them up, whether they're um, Republican or, or Democratic individuals themselves. They, you know, they've talked about some of the great things he's done. Like from what I understand, which is very little, there's actually some credence to his claim that he's done more for the black community than any other president, save Abe Lincoln. Abe Lincoln. I don't know the validity of that, but it, it seems to me to be that there's been a lot of stuff that he's actually done. But you'd never know it by all the shit he says. And so there's the perception of what he says that totally just negates everything he may have because let's let's assume that that statement is true. You would never know because he says so much stuff that just takes away from the fact that he's actually helping a community that by and large will never vote for him. Yeah. And it's like there's got to be a better way to handle that. I heard a report that if 20 percent of the black community voted for Trump, let's say, or just Republicans, in any general election, the Senate, the House, whatever, if 20% of black vote went to Republicans, Republicans would never lose another election again, like a general election. Mm. All they would need is 20% of the black vote. No, basically, the assumption is that everything else holds constant. They just get whatever number of the white vote they get. They will win every presidential election forever, unless the demographics change drastically. Wow. And I think they pull it like 5% every year. And statistically speaking, from like a temperamental standpoint, it should be 50-50 because temperaments, broadly speaking, operate on a bell curve. There's some variance depending on sex and um, biological or gender, however you want to break it down. But there's virtually no difference based on race. And temperament tells a lot about how people vote. And even if it didn't tell that much, even if it only accounted for like 30% of how people vote, the odds that the other 70% of how the black community votes would skew 95% of them to the left is there's something else going on there. Like there's just no statistical reason why all black people should vote for the left and not the right at all. And um, part of it's messaging. I think the biggest reason is messaging. There's bound to be a significant portion of the black community that votes left that actually is fundamentally conservative. They just don't like the message from the right. I can't see how that wouldn't be a sizable portion because of temper just because of temperament alone but also because i mean the constant refrain on the right is that democrats have done nothing for the black community over the last 60 years because if they had then impoverished the impoverished the impoverishment rate of say latinos and the blacks would be would be lower there would be less there would be less criminality there'd be you know they'd have more money all these kinds of things and they don't seem to have that but they have all these programs that don't seem to work and there's probably a little bit of truth to that, and that they still vote Democrat. I think all on both sides, it's mainly just lip service. I think yes. anything that um, Trump has done to benefit the black community, my guess is, and I don't have the full details on this, but my guess is the vast majority of, of it, if not everything, is strictly incidental, meaning um, hypothetical example here that might be way off base, but you get the idea. Uh, Trump opened up fracking, mm -hmm. which created a bunch of jobs, got us to be energy independent. Um, those, th in isolation, those are good things, right? Sure. Um, and maybe, just maybe, that created a bunch of jobs that the black community got to get employed with. Sure. Right? So create a bunch of black jobs. It's not like Trump said, we need to create black jobs, let's look into fracking. Yeah. It's... 
um, you know, Wall Street donor X, Y, or Z is uh, encouraging me to open up some fracking. And then in retrospect, somebody on Trump's team, certainly not him, but somebody on Trump's team will say, hey, look, you've increased in un or you've decreased unemployment in the black community because of the fracking thing. Sure. Oh, no shit. Okay, cool. We'll, we'll talk about that. But that was never his intention. Oh, I yeah, I doubt it. Yeah. Um, so I, I think that, you know, there, there are some things that he, some beneficial things that Trump has done. Mm -hmm. Um, particularly as we've talked about, uh, working to, to combat the critical race theory and education and stuff like that. I, I do support that. So credit where credit is due, but I think his motivations are entirely self-centered. Yes. I, and, I totally agree. Yeah. There, there will be some things that benefit some people along the way, but that's never his intention. Um, so to have him as the guy running shit is not good for anybody unless you're in your pocket. Yes. So um, this actually brings me to the to, to wrap up your, your initial question of what I'm afraid of about both Trump and Biden. Um, so for for Biden presidency, um, Critical theory or social justice theory is what scares me the most. Mm -hmm. um, or I guess more specifically, <clears throat> totalitarianism, which may be a little bit of a leap for a lot of people, but it's it's actually a pretty small leap uh, in my estimation. It, I don't think it takes very long to go from wanting progressive things to pushing progressive ideology to, pro to pushing, you know, these kinds of theories that we're talking about, which are postmodern and Marxist in nature, roughly speaking, um, to a totalitarian regime. That's just where that ends up. And that's worse than, you know, and you may ask the question, you know, Trump's an authoritarian broadly, right? Like, so you know, what's the new that that's bad too. And it's like, I'd rather have an authoritarian than a totalitarian because an authoritarian is one person who controls it and does what they want. Whereas totalitarian is a state that controls everything mm. and it's way worse. Yeah. And it, 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 it's a hydra with multiple heads versus, you know, a kleptocracy run by one individual, you know, like yeah. it, and there's other things to it, but that's broadly speaking, how I look at, like, no one is like, Biden is going to come in and usher in this socialistic utopia based on critical race theory, and everyone's going to be equalized, and all outcomes will be the same, and everyone will be the same height and the same gender <laughs> fluidity, and we'll have equal jobs and make equal money. Because no one gives a fuck about Joe Biden. What does everyone say? They're like, the Democrats are going to come in. Kamala Harris is going to come in. Everyone below Joe Biden is going to come in and usher in this this critical race theory, and no one cares about Joe Biden. He's a he's a he's a filler, yeah. right? Whereas all anyone cares about on the right is Trump. Like, and that's the big difference. Is like it's Trump, 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 Trump. It's not what's what strings is Mike Pence pulling in the background. <laughs> that was actually the initial fear was that Trump was going to be a puppet for this spider-like figure of Mike Pence. I remember that specifically when Trump was elected is that a lot of people were afraid that Mike Pence was this like evil, you know, this evil vampire that was actually just kind of puppeting around Trump like a, um, 
Cheney did George Bush. Yeah. Right. <laughs> that's almost charming in retrospect. Yeah. And <laughs> but that's like actually what people are afraid of with with Joe Biden. They're not afraid that Joe Biden's going to come in and just do all this crazy lefty stuff. They're afraid that Joe Biden's going to come in and do nothing while everyone behind him implements yeah. all this crazy lefty stuff. Yeah. And it's like, fair enough. Like, that's actually a concern that I have to the degree that that'll happen. I don't know. But we've talked a lot about this on the podcast. It's not a simple matter of pointing at critical theory and saying that's wrong. It's obvious. Look, like, look at the Black Lives Matter movement. That's wrong. It's like, good luck with that. <laughs> you know, it's like you got to dig deeper and it's like. Look at the equity movement. That's wrong. You know, and I, I saw on Facebook, there was um, this, argu this argument on Facebook. And normally I don't go through these threads, but this was about equity. And so I was like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to suck it up and waste two hours of my life. And I took a nap afterwards because my brain hurt. But there was like a 70 comment thread between two people about this. It was, it was interesting. And this girl was talking about equity. Um, and uh, apparently I actually reached out to both of them via private message to ask them some questions, but apparently the guy who responded knew her from high school. And so they were having like a, a semi-combative exchange and she was talking about equity and he was like, you know, can you explain more about this? Because what you're describing is a quality of outcome. That's what equity is. It's a problem. The sa same things like what you and I talk about. Sure. And she's like, no, it's not. No, it's not. And she started explaining. And he's like, that's a quality of outcome. And then she's like, you know, you don't, you know, you don't want people to be equal or whatever. You know, the, 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 the similar line of like, you're a racist, that kind of thing. She didn't quite say that stuff, but she was alluding to the fact that he doesn't want people to be equal and all this kind of stuff. And he's like, it's not that. It's just the way you're describing is a quality of outcome, which is a problem. Here's why. And she like put up this little um, image to explain a quality of outcome versus a quality of opportunity. And she's like, see, this is the difference. And it will literally, near as I can tell, it's a fucking image of a quality of outcome. <laughs> it, was, it was a picture where there was like um, a fence and there was a really tall person who could see over the fence and um, didn't need a ladder and then, uh, or he had a small ladder and he could see over the fence. And then there was two or three other people who were shorter and they had the same size ladder, but they couldn't see over the fence. Equality of opportunity. Everyone gets the same thing, and then hopefully you do well with it. And then equality of outcome was the tall guy gets no ladder because he can see over the fence. Everyone else gets different sized ladders so that they can all see over the fence. And it's like you get you get something according to your needs. And she and uh, he's like, you know, quality of outcome is outcome based. And she's like, see, this is what it is. It's just getting, making everyone giving everyone what they need so that there can be an equal thing. It's not about the outcome. And I'm like, the outcome is that they can see over the damn fence. Like, that's the fucking outcome. That's the whole point of the, the, the thing. And, and she showed another one to try and explain it to him again differently. I think it was the same author who drew it. But it had to do with um, different people trying to ride a bike. And so there was one person on a regular bike and a kid on, a, on the same bike, but he was too small to ride the bike. And then someone who was disabled who couldn't get on the bike because they're disabled. And that was an opportunity. And then equity or that was equality and then equity was they all had different bikes that were tailor-made to them so they could all ride them so the kid had a small bike the person who was disabled had like a, a bike where they sit and they could um pedal with their hands or something like that and um and it's like the outcome is still what's equalized that's the entire fucking point and like and you're also using easy answers like of course i want someone who's disabled to be able to ride a bike yeah that isn't, that isn't the point. And he, he kept trying to like reiterate this. And he was, I could tell he was like trying to be like kind of nice about it. 
and I emailed her. I didn't actually ask her like, how is this not a quality? Cause he actually asked her, he's like, how is that not a quality of outcome? And she tried to explain it. And she explained a quality of outcome. And I didn't have the heart to ask her because I, I am Dern was like, Hey, like, can you, can you show me where you got this? Like, I'm really curious about this. Like I was mm -hmm. trying to be pleasant kind of see what it was she knew. And she sent me to this website that had all these videos and stuff explaining what a quality of outcome was and or equity was, and it was a quality of outcome. Send me a link to that. If you I, think of I'll, it. I'll, I'll try and find curious. it again. Yeah. yeah. And, um, my point though, was it's like, she didn't get it. And I was, I was just like, that literally is the out that you're, you're, you're like purposely not paying attention to the outcome. Making my case for me. Yeah. You're literally making the case because you have no idea that you're actually talking about the outcomes. Like you're, you're trying to equalize everyone at the top. And like that, that's my legitimate fear is that over time, that's what we'll see happen. And there's going to be goods to that. Some of those things are actually kind of good. Like so, some, some outcomes should probably be more equalized than they are. I think that, that by and large is probably always a true statement. I don't, excuse me. Does that mean that they're going to be? No. And does that mean that as a society, we should force those things? Also, no. It isn't clear to me that just because some things are unequal, that that's wrong. And Life is unequal. That's the thing <laughs> is, it's like, I, I don't... I just, I just don't get the assumption that because there is inequality, however, whatever that may be, that it's therefore wrong. Sometimes it is. Like some people are homeless and there's inequality with people who have homes and people who aren't. Like, and that's, I don't think there should be people who are homeless unless they want to be homeless by choice. And some people actually want to be homeless by choice, to be fair, but um, that's actually moderately common. At least it is in uh, um on the, on the West coast, because it's at least in the, in the South in particular, because it's, it's dry. And in Hawaii in particular, it's, it's common because the weather there's uh, so nice. So, so many days out of the year, much easier to be a homeless. Yeah, there no, right, exactly. Seattle. But I mean, my hometown in particular, um, there was a study that was done and, uh, there's a decent homeless population, but it's a small city. And so the, the, the city itself can keep tabs on all the homeless people. And, um, a large majority of them are homeless by choice. They're disaffected by society. They have money because most of them have been, they've had acts, traumatic accidents, work accidents, or um, things like that. And they, they've won settlements. I would say, I think it was like 35%, something like, like a pretty, wow. like a pretty large majority, okay. not majority, but a pretty large um, group. Uh, you know, they, they had issues. They'd won settlements for uh, psychological issues at work or, um, you know, whatever. Um, I think, you know, a, a few of the women had won, uh, you know, divorce settlements and things like that. What, what doesn't matter what it is, but they'd have money from the state or something or, or from an inheritance or what have you. And they would choose to live off grid, hmm. you know, and it's like some people just want to do that. I knew there was a few, but that, that's a high number. That's way more than yeah, I would have guessed. It, it shocked me. I'll, I'll yeah. see if I can find the article in the archives of my, uh, my um, hometown newspaper, but um, because the number is probably actually different than that percentage, but it was high, like the, yeah. it was high enough to where I was like, oh damn, like it isn't like a single digit number. Right. It's, it, it was high. And I was like, that's a lot of people who just choose to live on the street, yeah. but they don't want to follow the rules of society and so fine, let them do it. But there are also other things where it's not clear to me that you want to eat. We were talking a couple of weeks ago about how are we going to properly equalize uh, basketball? Like you can't. basketball alone probably accounts for a huge percentage of black millionaires. 
because it's mostly black yeah. in the NBA and I think in the WNBA. It's like half of those gone. Well, here's here's a, you know? at a broader level. If if everything is equal uh, and the outcomes are all the same, by definition, you get rid of excellence. Also true. And without excellence, why would we do anything? Sorry, pretty much. Sorry, Elon Musk. You Whether, have to stop doing everything that you're doing because it's unequal. Right. So whether it's for your own personal accomplishment or if it's just something that you enjoy watching and or listening to, mm -hmm. whether it's your favorite band or your favorite director making movies and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, we enjoy excellence. Yeah. And that would crush all of that. Mm -hmm. It does crush all of that. We've seen that. This is, it's not hypothetical. Um, yeah, I would. I think for me, as far as concerns, it seems to me that if Trump wins, there's a more immediate concern, and if Biden wins, it's it's potential to be a longer term. Um, it's kind of like uh, with Trump, you broke your arm, and maybe it gets infected. I'm trying to think of something worse than a an arm break, but say you broke your arm, definitely needs to be addressed right away. Whereas uh, Biden means you got cancer. I was just going to say cancer. Yeah. 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 It's going to take a while to kill you. But, but not it, skin cancer, like a, a cancer that actually kills you. Yeah. Pick your cancer. <laughs> What's your favorite cancer? Um, but if Trump gets reelected, and if you recall, he set the record for the earliest person to register for re-election. It's like a weekend or something. Hours. Hours, that's right. It was a matter of hours after the inauguration, he registered for re-election. That was in 2016. So obviously that's been on his mind. He wants to win. Sure. Um, so if re-election is no longer an option, what are Trump's new motivations? How much of a bull in a china shop can he be knowing he doesn't have to worry about re-election if he gets in? So that's the immediate threat. Mm -hmm. That's the, we might bleed out, right? Uh, on the flip side, Biden gets in, particularly if it becomes the, the Harris presidency. Um, the potential to give enough oxygen to this, you know, the, the wokeivists and the the progress they have already made through our institutions and through our educational system will only get worse maybe uh, greatly emboldened to the point where it could legitimately um, uh, threaten the Republic itself. Yeah. Uh, so I don't know, I don't know which would be worse. If can we, can we survive another four years of Trump? We'll just get through it. Or will he be so deleterious to the office itself and our standing on the world stage and all of everything? Mm -hmm. Or, are we opening the door for something that in the end kills the Republic? I don't know. Hopefully I'm wrong about both of those. Well, uh, the other thing too, is he could, he could do what Grover Cleveland did and he could, um, let's say he doesn't get elected. He can always run in four years. Sure. Uh, well, he's, he do, Trump is not going away. Yeah. I mean, he, he's old, but Grover Cleveland, he lost reelect, he lost reelection and got voted out. And then he, re the president after him did so bad that people were like, uh, you should, they basically asked him to come back. They're the Republicans, at least, I believe, the right. Republicans. And, and um, so he 
or no, he's a Democrat, sorry, but he um, ran again and won because people, I think from what I understand, basically it was a case of they were a little lukewarm about him at re-election. I don't think he tried too hard either. Um, but then after what came in after him, the public was like, ah, this was worse. <laughs> we want Grover back. Right. And so, you know, he ran again and won and they were like, okay, we like what you have. You know, it's kind of that case of, you know, I, I'm missing you after you're gone, right? And so, um, <laughs> sorry, that was a, that was a fake breakup. You know, come back. And so he he could definitely could still could still do that. Um, yeah, how crazy would that be if Trump actually loses and then gets elected again in four years? That would be. Yeah, uh, I didn't want to think about that. That's terrible. I, I have. I want to go back to one thought about we were talking about equity. I want to finish it in my head, get mm -hmm. it out of my yeah. head before we move on. Um, so the the pictures I was talking about, about like looking over the fence, there was another mm -hmm. one of like a, an apple tree that was bent. And so like a tall person could pick it um, with a small ladder and then like a short person couldn't because they had a short ladder and, and it was bent on one side so they couldn't reach it. And so the whole purpose was to like straighten the tree out using, you know, wood and construction and then give the short person a, a taller ladder and then they could, you know, pick that. But anyways, they had a bunch of examples like this. You know, like a tall person could reach the top of a, uh, like an armoire and then a short person couldn't. And it made me realize that like, okay, you're describing equity when you fix this problem. But at the same time, what are you gonna do with that same armoire, let's say, or that same fence? Let's say that, the, that there's a fence and the tall person can see over it and that's what they do really well. The short person can't, so you give them a ladder. But what if the short person could just as easily dig and crawl under the fence? Let's say there's a small hole under the fence. Sure. And they could just easily slide under and that's what they're good at are you going to fill the hole up because the tall person can't do that or are you going to make the hole bigger so now you give the short person a really tall ladder and then you make then you you either fill up the hole for the short person can't get through now because the tall person can't get through it or you make the hole even bigger like and then you just create all these problems it's like mm -hmm. maybe the tall person is really good at doing certain things and really shitty at doing other things like there are just some things that Shaq cannot do Sure. Yeah. You know, what comes to my mind actually is the in the movie Forrest Gump, uh, Tom Hanks, he's a, I think they call him a foxhole uh, um, checker or something. He like puts his, he like crawls into holes in Vietnam to check if there's any Viet Cong in there. And it's like a tiny hole and he's kind of got a small body and he's fearless. So they shove him in there. Shaq's not getting in those tiny holes right. because he's five times larger than the average Vietnamese individual. Like actually, because he's seven feet tall and 300 pounds. Yeah. So he just can't do that. So for, for an equity's sake, how are we going to solve those problems? Or maybe we can just let him do what he's good at and then let small people do what they're good at and vice versa. Well, I think it's, it's a, mis or a misunderstanding of what opportunity means exactly. in the, the, the fence example. Um, it also assumes that everyone wants this, that it, I think it is, it also assumes that everyone has the same idea of what good opportunities are and what bad ones are. Excellent point. Right. Yes. Like, yeah, like everyone wants the C-suite at the top of a, a skyscraper and everyone wants to be an elite athlete and wants the most banging job and the coolest cars and the hottest dates and in the jet. And it's like, not everyone wants that. Yeah. Nor should they. I mean, that's, yeah. that's what makes life interesting. I, I was going to say like in terms of opportunity with this fence problem, rather than, you know, how tall is your ladder? Um, well, I tell you what, uh, here's a hundred bucks, everybody figure it out. 
tall guy reaches up and grabs an apple. Medium-sized guy heads down to Home Depot, buys a ladder, and gets himself an apple. And the short person goes, oh, wait, they got apples at QFC. Went and bought himself an apple. Went about his day. It's yeah. opportunity. Everybody, everybody got the apple. They just got it in different ways. Yeah. And that, that is, is, uh, that's virtuous. Everybody gets the opportunity, but they may go about it differently. Yeah. Or playing on that, that example, maybe the smallest person, due to their small size, compact nature is able to climb the tree. Just, yeah, just and climb then, it. And then shake all the apples out of the tree for everyone else. Yeah. Not even just get one of their own, but they're able to shake the tree without breaking the limbs like the, the big person probably would yeah. if they could climb it. And then everyone gets apples. And then you have, an, you have a situation where this person who was disadvantaged due to an unequal opportunity, therefore pro now provided, had an ingenious idea to provide for everyone around them. It's like you rob everyone of, of those kinds of things. Now, there are opposite parts of that problem because there are legitimate inequalities that need to be solved that you know are hard to solve. So I, I don't want to minimize some of those things, but... It's at the opportunity level. Yeah, it's... To, to blanketly state that if there is not equality quota numbers or what have you, that it's a problem. It's like, good luck. I mean, just good luck. I don't know. I don't know how we're going to solve. The, it, it seems to me to be such a silly issue to solve. Um, and silly because I think it's impossible. It's like, I, I just don't get how, how you're going to force young girls who want to be school teachers into becoming doctors and engineers because of equality sure. or because of equity, yeah. you know, and how you're going to force young boys who grew up on farms and who want to be ranch hands and own their own farms to go into social work because it's primarily women, you know, like I, or how you're going to, you know, force young athletic black kids in poor communities who know that the only way they can get out of their poor community is to get a scholarship to play sports you know, to go study anthropology or to dig up rocks or to become a history teacher, none of which make near as much money if you're good. It's like I – it seems to me to be – I forget who says this. It's probably been said by multiple people, but these kinds of problems, when they don't work, the people they hurt the most are the people they're trying to help. Because let's say that equity gets equity doctrine gets put into place as a result of Biden winning, and now everything has to be equal, and we have diversity trainings, and everyone's everyone who's whites are racist, and uh, we have to go through all this stuff to equalize and to understand our bad history, and to apologize to everyone for institutional things, and to pay reparations, and then to equalize numbers of based on genders and races and all those kinds of things. Who's gonna not put up with it? People who don't give a fuck which is probably 10% of the population, roughly speaking, temperamentally, they're just going to say, fuck you. And because they're assholes. That's, that's the asshole part of the population. The ones who just say, fuck you to whoever tells them what to do. Don't tell me what to do. And the other people who are going to leave are the people with money. Mm -hmm. But all of the poor areas of the country, you know, the Detroits and the Comptons and the Oaklands and the whatever cities that have no money, they can't just get up and leave. No one from Compton is just going to get in their car and drive up to Canada right. and then hopefully make a living out of it. They're not going to fly to Paris and, you know, check into their 
you know, their, their, their suite that they, that they pay for all year on the Champs-Élysées and just hang out and start a new life. That's what all the rich people do. And they're going to doing are doing and yeah. they're going to do more. Why would they not do more of it if their government cracks down and doesn't let them do what they want to do? They have the money to leave. And so or they're just going to throw enough money at people to corrupt the system so that they don't have to do what everyone else has to do. And then again, who gets hurt? The people who don't have the money. And then you don't solve the problem. Like they're assuming that if we get this equalization that somehow like everyone can is going to a love it and B is going to be happy with it and C can leave if they want to because they don't like it. It's like it's not going to work that way. Like you're going to create more poor people because that's what happens when you with a quality of outcome. And then everyone who's poor is not going to be able to leave and actually have a better life. They're just going to be stuck here in a shithole. Yep. And I never hear anyone talk about that. Like no one ever is like all of these programs that seem so good. If they don't work, they, they actually just harm the people they're trying to help, which is a problem. It's like, you don't want that. You want to actually help the people that you're trying to help. That's the whole point of trying to help them. Yeah. You know? Well, and you know, I mean, just to, to reiterate, since we, uh, we bang on critical race theory a lot, um, I am 100% in favor for equalizing the opportunity for everybody. Yes. Um, but specifically, specifically the black community, because they have had their own specific challenges, um, to address that specifically to um, give everybody as much opportunity as is possible. Uh, hundred fucking percent. Yes. It's just the tactic. Mm-hmm. This critical race theory is not the solution. It'll only no. make things worse. So, yeah. No one, very few people talk about how demeaning to the black community the concept of white fragility is. The concept of uh, anti-racism and the like is. Like, I don't, I don't understand why it's not brought up more. There's this notion that white people are always racist and that they oppress black people which is bad in of itself for white people. Cause like I, I, as a white person, as a white straight male have to walk around if I chose to do so with this, this knowledge and this, um, shame that my, the very breath that I take oppresses the minorities and women around me. Like that, that's a hard thing to deal with. If you want to believe that and then internalize it. Sure. We're the worst man. Yeah. We, we are the fucking worst, but at the same time, all that does, all that, all, the whole theory behind that is demeaning to the black culture as well because it takes away any autonomy and any ability for freedom of choice from women and members of the black community. Exactly. It's like no matter what you do, because I'm white, I oppress you, period. You have no power. Good luck. It treats the white community as a monolith. Yes. And it's like, is racist in and of itself. Also true. And at the same time, and no, like I said, no one ever talks about it, but it's like, what a message to tell a quote-unquote marginalized community. Mm-hmm. It's like, hey, yeah, we know you're marginalized and life's been bad. The reason we have, we have the enemy, and it's white people, and there's nothing either of you can do about it. Yeah, once we fix the white people, life's going to be better for you. Yeah. But until then, like the hang only, in there. So, yeah, so I'll take that back. It's not nothing. There's nothing you can do about it. It's like the only thing that can really be done, which isn't articulated that much, but near as I can tell, the only thing I can think of that would actually solve the problem is to tear down and rebuild whatever structure is creating the problem. Because remember, it's systemic also too. It isn't just individualistic, it's systemic issues. So you tear the system down and rebuild it. And it's like, 
that seems very powerless to me. It's like you have no control over. It assumes every black person is brittle. Th- that's yeah. Which that's the thing. Historically, it, is the exact opposite no, of the truth. They're in, extraordinarily resilient. Mm-hmm. And if you hear the individuals who are talking about a lot of the stuff that we're talking about, they'll actually refer to black community throughout history as resilient. Right. That's one of the big ethos of the black female community. Right. Is how resilient and how powerful they are. Yep. Like the feminist movement has been um, has progressed on the backs of black women from the time of the first feminist movement. That's actually part of I'm paraphrasing, but that's the saying that they have is that mm-hmm. this whole thing has been pushed forward and born on the backs of black women. And now it's there. That's partly why black women are at the forefront of the Black Lives Matter movement. And, and a lot of the other empowerment movements that we see, the, black, the, the, um, the March on Washington, the Women's March on Washington was very black female centric. And part of that is because they've been ignored for a long time and all of this has been put on their backs and they have had no voice. You know what they need? They, they need no power and they need a system to come in and, and tell op- them. They need to, opportunity. They, well, that's exactly what they need. But what they're told they need or what, what they're claiming they need is they want to identify an enemy apparently give up some autonomy and power in the process and then tear something down and rebuild it. And it's like, I don't, I'm not saying that there isn't a problem and that they don't have problems and that they don't, shouldn't be solved. And that I even understand them because I don't, but it's not clear to me that the right thing to do is to cede any power that you do have to the white man, let's say, because there's nothing you can do about it unless you tear the white man or the white patriarchy down and rebuild it. It's like yeah. that it's an inherently negative message for everybody, but no one's talking about how inherently negative it is for everybody. It's like it's no wonder that as a straight white male, I would I would I would object to this sort of <laughs> ideology. Like the whole thing is predicated on me literally being public enemy number one, right? You know, I'm Johnny Depp in the movie Public Enemy Number One. <laughs> like uh, I'm Dillinger. Like I'm the bad guy. So You've sure, been watching some old movies lately, huh? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but it's like you know, like of course I would object to it in any way that I would, and of course, according to theory, every objection I make makes me just fragile and racist, but which is just emphatically not true, but no one talks about how it's equally bad for women and minorities for the BIPOC community. Like you have agency and power and control. You may not have as much as some other people, but neither do I. Yeah. Like they don't have power over everyone or really anyone. Well, and, and how much better it has gotten. Exactly. Also keep true. the context of the entire history. Um, you know, from slavery up through Jim Crow, progress is being made. Yeah. Uh, yeah, don't don't forget that. It could be a whole lot worse. Uh, John McWhorter was talking about, um, you know, most black people today do not experience that type of racism every minute of every day like they are being led to believe online right now. Yeah. You just, you go about your life. And, you know, occasionally you're going to have a very negative experience and that's not okay. So that's not to, uh, to demean that in any way, but it is not every minute of every day, every single white person is calling you the N word or trying to, to mess with you in some way. Mm -hmm. This is just not the society we live in. Yeah. There's assholes out there. Yes. There are actual real live white supremacists, but not as many as, as, uh, they would lead you to believe. Yeah. See if we've made any movement. Oh, look at this. 
So it is 3.39 Pacific Standard Time, and it looks like Joe Biden has got 264. Mm -hmm. He was just projected to get Michigan, I guess. Okay. So looking more and more like it's going to be Biden. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> All right. Well, hopefully we uh, get rid of the bull in the china shop. <laughs> blink, blink, blink. Why is my mic doing that? I will say this. I um, We have a record number of people who voted. Yes, yes. So that's encouraging, I and guess. Not even just numbers, like total numbers, because we always have way more people than we did 100 years ago, but a way larger number than a percentage of the population voted. Yep. I think it's the largest in like 150 years or something, Yeah. which is amazing. So that, it's like one of those silver linings. It's like... Shit's crazy right now, but at least people are getting out. Right. Um, yeah. We, I, so I, I am happy about that. My dad voted for the first time. Oh, yeah? Yeah. He's 59, 60. First time ever voting. 62. Sorry, 62, 63. First time voting. Shit. Yeah. Voted for the first time. He was in prison for a while, so he need, um, when I was a kid, and he <clears> uh, didn't because he had a nonviolent offense, he was able to register with the state and get his, to vote again. Like, okay. you, you can, like, apply to the state, and they'll give you your right to vote, your right to carry a gun um, after a certain amount of time. But um, he just never did. And then he never voted beforehand because he's one of those disaffected individuals who just says, fuck the system. And, you know, he had drug issues and stuff too, but um, he just never cared. Hmm. And he's, even he voted. I don't know who there I haven't talked go. to him since uh, <clears throat> since since he voted, but uh, it's like I, that's people should get out, you know, and even if they don't know a lot, you should still get out and vote. I mean, I'm not idealistic enough to think that every vote matters because they don't. Um, when I told people that I that are close to me that I was voting third party to a number, all of my family told me I was wasting my vote. In a state that I've, you know, like I've already mentioned, has voted Democrat its entire life. It's like I'm not wasting my vote. Like my vote literally <laughs> does. First off, that logic yeah. is bullshit. My vote has not counted and will never count yeah. until I move to one of those swing states where it actually matters. There's like 12 states, and sometimes it's like as low as five. And in some elections, it's like two states that actually matter every year. Yeah. Right. And that's it. And it's the Michigan. It's Pennsylvania. It's Ohio. Florida. Florida. Depending on the year, yeah, Florida, yeah. Um, Nebraska, and Maine, because they they split their votes. Sometimes, sometimes they matter. Um, the popular vote wins part of the votes, and then there's two congressional districts, one left and one right, generally, I think. And whoever wins those gets an electoral vote or something. I don't know. They break it up somehow. But California, Oregon, and Washington doesn't matter. Yep, those are those are blue. That's yep. just how that is. Right, exactly. <laughs> and some states are like that. You know, like yeah. you go and live in Louisiana, you're probably Always going to be red. Tennessee, red. Georgia, red. Alabama, red. Texas, we'll see. But uh, that's an interesting one. If that one, yeah. Flat. But um, that would be interesting. it was close, I guess. But yeah. mostly because Austin and a few other big cities are there's so many people in them. Yeah. And then the rest of Texas is huge and unpopulated and conservative. And so I, I looked at some of the numbers, and some of the cities were like 90% Trump. And then I don't remember the big city, but it was a lot closer. You know, it's. 50% Joe Biden, 48% Trump, things like that. Like, yeah. I think Austin actually was blue, but... Um, 
seems like the more you clump large groups of people together, the more likely they are to be Democrat. <laughs> well, they're um, just like highly populous areas, highly populous cities and stuff. Pluralistic, like there, there's a lot of um, um, diversity. Yep, you get a lot of people together. Yeah, um, and there's yeah, it, it's a, it's a it, it's part and parcel of how you have both a functioning society that allows for different peoples is you need more of them. Right. Um, you actually can't have, it's hard to have law and order without a big community. There's no need for it if you have too small of a community. Yeah, exactly. um, but so you're more likely to be conservative because you only need a few things if you're smaller, right? It's like, I don't need change. Everything I have works and it's simple. I know everyone. Yeah. Um, but you get more people and you're going to have d diversity of ideas. That doesn't necessarily mean you're going to have diversity of everything else, but you'll have a diversity of ideas, which is important. But um, so there's a bright side. Yeah. Our uh, our sister to the south there, Oregon, has decriminalized. I was going to bring this up. Yep. Decriminalized, yes. a, a, like all drugs at a small level or something, or like so, you know heroin, cocaine, stuff like that. I heard small. heroin, ho cocaine, and LSD. That's what I heard. Yeah. And apparently, uh, psilocybin. Little shroomies are legal now for recreational use. So yeah. So I'm not entirely sure the benefit. I'm not sure what they're trying to get with this. What do you mean? I don't. I I haven't read. All I read was an article that suggested that said that it was like on the ballot to be voted for or had been approved. So at some point soon it'll they'll become decriminalized. So there won't be because the. Heroin possession, heroin, cocaine, and LSD possession are going to be reduced from felonies to misdemeanors with like a hundred dollar fine. Mm -hmm. I didn't hear anything about uh, shrooms, but um, I'm not sure what the state is hoping to do with that. I don't know why they're heroin's bad shit. I don't know why they would sure. not make it a felony to have it. And like part of that's ignorance because I haven't read what their plan is. I, from what I gather, they're going to try and defer a bunch of the taxes they're making from selling weed, selling marijuana pot, um, to paying for programs to help individuals who, I guess I would presume, were addicted to heroin. But I would, would want to see how that's going to work before that seemed so you have in inpatient and outpatient treatment centers for drug abuse mm -hmm. outpatient is you come in during the day and you go home inpatient you come in and stay um last time it's been a long time since i checked this but um most inpatient treatment centers where you can't pay you don't have any money are like three to seven days you can't get off heroin in seven days no it's not Maybe, maybe there's a small, like a super small minority, but you, you don't get off hair. You're hooked for a long time. Like it takes a while. Um, my dad told me he literally went to prison to get off heroin. It's the actual truth. Sure. Oh yeah. He knew that if he didn't, he was going to end up dead. And he's like, the only way I can get off heroin and uh, other drugs um, is he intentionally got caught and uh, he was breaking into and stealing pharmaceuticals from doctors and he realized he was going to die. I mean, he can't get off it on his own. So he, after he broke into a place, instead of stealing shit and running, he sat down on the front porch, like the front steps of the, the doctor's office and just waited for the cops and was like, I did it. Here you go. 
And yeah, I know a guy, a uh, similar story. His, his drug of choice was meth, but he uh, got picked up for something and he had a, a fairly sizable, he wasn't moving big weight, but he had a fairly sizable amount on him. Long story short, he had the opportunity for, I think, parole. And in talking to the judge, the judge, if you let me back on the street right now, I'm just going to go back and use. Yep. I want to stay in. Yep. Uh, and he did. And yep. uh, last, talk, talk, last time I talked to him, he'd been clean since. And, yep. Similar yeah. to my dad, he, um, he had committed, uh, I think, like 11, 12, maybe 15 um, burglaries. Which for anyone listening is 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 different from armed uh, from like um or sorry breaking and entering, fifteen B and E's, which is different from burglary and armed robbery, and um, broadly speaking, the difference is someone has to be there and you need a weapon. Mm-hmm. So B and E is you can have a weapon, but if some, but no one's there, right? Um, and I think there's like a distinction between whether they make themselves known and you threaten them like there's there's some breakdowns right so sure. um then i forget the gradients for but whatever the case he, he copped to all of them he like helped the police solve like 12 unsolved bnes and the judge was going to give him leniency and he said no he's like i, I need to stay in this did the same thing and the judge actually gave him a slightly lighter sentence than he normally would have not much but he gave him a little bit lighter of a sentence because he appreciated the honesty but it was still like just over four years and um as opposed to they, they offered him like two or one and a half and the high end would have been five years total 60 months instead of uh he got 51 but um it's not clear to me so anyway so i'll go back to the D, uh, the dapc so um you need longer than seven days for inpatient treatment to help these to help some people, especially with heroin addiction. Some of the other addictions, maybe it's a little bit easier. I, I'm pretty certain it's actually easier to get off of heroin's really, really, really tough. It's outside of alcohol, it's the only withdrawal that'll kill you. Um, you get the shakes from alcohol and kill you as well. But heroin and alcohol both, you can die. The rest, it's going to suck. But near as I can tell, there isn't. It's not fatal. Um, so you need longer. That costs money. So are they going to have seven-day inpatient treatment? Or are they going to do 30-day? Are they going to do 60-day? Are they going to do 90-day? Because if you're not going to do a 30-day or a 60-day inpatient treatment center for um, you know, heroin addicts, I don't know why you would not criminalize it and put them in somewhere where they're actually going to get clean. Now, I think I, I, I get the logic of what you're saying. I don't think in practice that really lines up. I think sure, that, yeah. um, the idea is, and I haven't looked really into this either, but I, I believe the idea is, um, just from hearing other arguments along these lines, is to not spend the resources to house uh, people who are addicted to drugs by you know making it a felony and, and having to lock them up for a while. Because the vast majority of people, like your dad and my friend, are absolutely exceptions to the rule. That's not normally how that goes. Yeah. So if someone's hooked on heroin... Uh, you lock them up. That costs taxpayers. Um, it, as far as I understand, most prisons and jails, heroin's pretty easy to come by anyway. So you're not curing anybody unless they they want to, or maybe it's a you know super max or something where it's tougher. Mm-hmm. But drugs are certainly available in prison. Sure. And it just it just becomes that cycle, and the damage done to you know the rest of your life by having a felony, and you know not being able to vote, all that kind of stuff particularly how that affects minority communities. Yes. I think if they, if they get rid of that first level of we're going to try and fuck your whole life just because you got addicted, uh, 
um, and put resources into treatment, not to say that this move is going to fix everything. Like, oh, we found the solution. There's not going to be any more heroin addicts. Like, you know, of course not. Yeah. But it's 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 a step in the right direction to quit yeah. criminalizing people that just have drug problems. It's uh, my girlfriend and I were talking about this this morning, actually, because I read an article about it. But um, it basically it seems to me to be a first step in what would be multiple necessary steps to break the cycle. Yeah. But like I said, I want to see the details. That's what I want to see. Cause if, if they're just, if their whole point is just to decriminalize it and then they're going to fund seven day inpatient treatment and that's it. Let's say as an example, I don't think it's going to do any good for anybody. I think people are going to go into inpatient treatment for seven days and get out and go get high because they're still not going to be off. They're not going to finish the withdrawals. They're going to be sick. And when, when you've gone three, four days without what you normally take, you will do a lot of things to get what you want. Sure. Especially if you're around the people that you're normally around when you get high. You ask them, and if they're, if they're also addicts too, in particular, they're going to give it to you, but they may also have it. They may be friends. They may want to help because you're, or you may get violent. My dad's told me numerous stories about this kind of stuff where like, it's, it's so easy to just get out and go find someone, you know, who has it and they will give it to you. And so isolating yourself from the people that your friends that you hang out with when you are high is essential for most people. You need to do stuff like that. Oh yeah. That's, that's almost always part of the program. right? Yeah. And so it's like, I, I would want to see kind of what their plan is to, to, to do that because it would seem to me that getting them out of, let's say getting minority, the black community in particular, because there's a high number of uh, 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 black men in particular that are in prisons um, comparative to the black population. And so you want to get them out of prison, which I'm all for, in particular, if they're offenses or things or something, I don't think warrant long-term prison time. Or like you said, sometimes it's not always clear to me that just because someone has an addiction issue that they should go to prison, right? But there are times when they should because the actions that they actually, you know, their actions that they take when they're addicted or abhorrent and should warrant prison time. But anyways, so you get them out of prison and that's good. But if you don't give them or at least help them find the tools to set up what you or I or anyone would consider a normal, like a reasonable adult life, they're just going to go right back to it. And then there's not going to be any actual punishment. Like that's the other problem is like you have a bunch of people who go out and get high, they get caught, they pay a hundred dollars, they go into DAPC, they get meals for seven days, they come back out. That's what I see happening is just a, a large number of people who like, I, I see an increase in drug usage by the same people with no repercussions. That's the problem that I see. Statistically, it, it, that for the most part doesn't play out because um, like Venezuela, Amsterdam, places that are decriminalized, um, there may be a slight increase in usage. However, I believe across the board, there's always a reduction in crime. Uh, and that would be my other, hope, yeah. Yeah, some other variables. It's simply in that like, okay, we're not going to try to fix heroin addicts. 
Okay, fine. You're a heroin addict, you're a heroin addict. But let's not have you skulking around in the shadows, dropping dirty needles in the park and, and doing all that kind of stuff. Like, mm-hmm. okay, you're a heroin addict. Well, here's a place where you can go and get it safely. Yeah. So you're not buying it from Dirty Bob down the road. Are they setting up? Uh, do you know if they're going to be set? That, uh, that, that would be my other question, too. Somebody it- will because it's going to be market opportunity. If it yeah. is now legal, somebody is going to be able to... Uh, make a service to provide that. That that I'm more on board with. Like, I I don't necessarily, I have to think more about it, but I don't necessarily have a problem with setting up areas where people can safely go get high. I don't necessarily agree with the assumption that it should become common um, because I don't agree with rampant drug use. Well, that's again, the, like but statistically, that doesn't bear out. It, Even if it's a small yeah. increase, uh, it, it does not to, become yeah. common. And a lot of times, yeah. when the taboo goes away, usage goes down. And that's true too. And so that that's kind of what I would want to see is over because I'm obviously I'm definitely aware of that. Um, I mean, you see that with throughout history, quite quite a bit of things, um, quite a bit of, of stuff. But um, and so I would want to see. I mean, maybe Oregon's going to be the test case for for a lot of this stuff of like how how do they manage it? What are the policies they're putting into play? Um, because I don't want to see those things happen, and I could see how those things would happen, even if studies don't show other places that that studies show other places that it doesn't bear out. I could see how it could go off the rails, and you could have an increase in crime. Like it's not hard to imagine that. How it, would there be an increase in crime? More people get high. More crime like i could see that being logical i like think you're that trying right to commit there, more crime that connection in order to get high is not and maybe one to one yeah and maybe it's not right which is fine that that'd be my concern though let me like, let me uh, ask you yeah. this let me ask you this when i think you mentioned you had a surgery or something dental and you got some painkillers mm-hmm. some oxycontin or something like that god those things were amazing yeah did you feel like going out and doing some nasty crimes or did no. you feel like chilling on the couch watching tv or whatever reading a book i was too high to do anything right but no, so, so it's not people getting high that go yeah. out and do crimes. It's people that need to get high and they have yeah, no way to that, do it. That, yeah. That's what, that's kind of what I mean is that if they're getting out of programs and they need to get high because they're not, they haven't kicked the problem then they can't find anyone they, and they go commit crimes to get high. And, um, but like, like I said, I've heard, a decent amount of the stuff you're talking about. And so I think it's, it's plausible that you're correct um, until I see it. Like that's what I, I just want to see the results of it. That's really what I'm trying to say is yeah. that um, it wouldn't surprise me either way. What, what happens? I just want to see what it happens. And it, if it's for the betterment of the community, great. Totally fine with it. Um, I'm skeptical, but I mean, I, I also, you know, someone who's very dear to me has spent his entire life and all of my life addicted to heroin. And so I've seen what it's done firsthand. And so my skepticism is just born out of my experience of knowing that like a very intelligent and caring and compassionate, loving man fucked up his entire life for his whole life because of this problem. And it isn't clear to me that legalizing heroin would have solved the issue, honestly. And and for the record, decriminalized so it's not like you can go out and yeah. pick up a pound of black tar and uh, set sure, up shop yeah, sure, on sure. the corner de- or anything. Decriminalize versus like, legalize, yeah. my bad. Yeah, let me rephrase that. Yeah, yeah. Legalize it. Um, <laughs> right. It's not clear to me that that would have solved the problem for him. And that's kind of where I come at it is that 
if this helps solve the problem for people like my dad or people who were worse or don't have as big of a problem as my dad did and slash still does, then great. Um, I think it, I would come at it from the perspective of uh, lessening the impact. We don't need yeah. to solve this in one fell swoop. No. But if your dad was in a scenario where possession was legal and you didn't have to skulk around quite as much, maybe maybe it was a couple less burglaries that he had to commit because he could he could just straight up ask somebody, dude, can you float me 50 bucks? I need to get, I need to go get well uh, or whatever. Um, it lessens the impact. Yeah. Well, right? he actually mentioned that he did that because um, he's relapsed multiple times in his life and he was clean for, I think, about uh, 15 years, something like that. Um, maybe a little bit longer than that, but it, it was a good chunk of time from my early teens till uh, a couple of years ago. And um, he moved, well, what happened is he moved back home to his mm -hmm. hometown and he had withdrawals on the way from um, uh, his lower back pain. And so mm -hmm. um, heroin and other barbiturates have always been his drug of choice because it controls pain. Opiates, you mean? Yeah, opiates, yeah. Um, sorry, yeah, opiates. Because uh, no, it controls pain. And so he was, uh, he would distill poppy seeds, which are legal mm. to buy, and he would have tea. But as he did more and more of it, he'd get a more, better, to, a larger tolerance for it. And he went through withdrawals driving from the East Coast to the West Coast. And it like fucked with him. And because um, he got too dependent on strong poppy seed poppy tea. Poppy seed tea. Yeah. No kidding. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and so uh, but he moves back home. Goes through withdrawals. Things are fine. Though. It gets over. It takes him three weeks to get normal, maybe a month. And um, has a falling out with his sister, my aunt, and then has to move into a, um, a community house. Like a, you're homeless, but you, you can live here as mm -hmm. long as you look for a job and don't do stupid shit kind of a thing. It's actually called the community house. But um, And drug use is rampant. People get kicked out, but you can get drugs. And within a month, Knew half the people there because he grew up in the town. Yep. Did drugs in the town. Hadn't seen a bunch of them in 15, you know, hadn't seen a bunch of them in 10 years, 15 <laughs> years because he didn't hang out with them when he was clean. Dude, it's been so long. Let's go party. Yeah. And he's got back pain. And then, you know, what he said he used to do, though, is he would go to the doctors as he was because he almost died a couple times. And he was in his late 50s. And he would go to his doctor and be like, look, if you don't give me a prescription, I'm going to go steal shit and then pawn it for drugs. I don't have a choice. And so he said the doctors would write him scripts so that he could at least somewhat manageably, safely, yeah. even though it's illegal for them to do so, <clears throat> do this versus committing crimes. And I don't want to see a situation where that sort of stuff goes on. And like that's why I talk about the DAPC part is that I, I, I can see situations where like my dad gets thrown in a DAPC for a week, it's not enough. And now he's faced with this decision of, I have massive pain and I need something or I'm gonna go steal something to get heroin. So I gotta go try and get, you know, get doctors to give me prescriptions so that I um, don't do that. Yeah. But then I risk their, like the, there's just so many factors and the, the problem compounds. And I could see that being a very real problem for a lot of people. Now, maybe my dad is just unique. He's, um, for all of his faults, he's an absurdly um, honest individual. 
much like myself, he's very, very honest. And so like, I, I think it really only takes an honest person to, to literally tell a doctor that I need these drugs for my pain or I'm going to go steal shit and buy heroin. Yeah. Most drug addicts aren't going to tell a doctor that they're going to lie about pain to get mm -hmm. drugs because they're addicted to pills, right? It's he's kind of doing the opposite of what people tend to do because he's he's really honest, and um, even with theft, he was very honest about it. And um, so maybe this isn't the average experience, but uh, that those are the kinds of things that I fear will come about more often from stuff like this. And a lot of it's just born on ignorance. I don't know what's in their plan. Sure, I, I'm sure, not sure what Oregon's actually trying to do with this. I um, think I think we've been conditioned growing up in the United States with the war on drugs and everything to associate a slippery slope stance on anything drug related, you know, where it's, uh, yeah, we're going to, you know, decriminalize these certain drugs. Mm -hmm. Oh my God, are you trying to make everyone a drug addict? See, I don't actually think that's no, going to happen. Quite the opposite, actually. Yeah, yeah. But it's easy to, you know, especially if, you know, if you're listening to just one side of the story, yeah. like, you know, uh, uh, was it oh, like the D.A.R.E. program and stuff like yeah. that? Um, no, Nancy Reagan back in the 80s. Right. Be glad you skipped that. That was an interesting time. Yeah. No, I but, don't think at all that it, I mean, you might see initially an increase in new drug users. But I think you see that. I'm, I'm sure when we, when pot was legalized in the states that it's legal, you saw an increase in new pot buyers mm -hmm. because it's legal now. Yeah. People who hadn't smoked in 20, since college are like, oh, I can go buy a joint. Like, you know, it, it's a similar thing. You're going to see some of that. But it, like you said, it, I know it's going to tailor off. Um, my concern is just the repeat. A lot of the stuff that my dad did and saw, I can see that if they don't handle it right, just those kinds of low level crimes right. repeating, Yeah, you know, it's like you said, it, it's not really what you do when you're high though. Crimes do are committed when people are high. I think it's less so with heroin and more so with like crack or, um, and, yeah, and methamphetamine. Yeah. But, um, and so that's, that's a separate thing because yeah. you're a little bit more active on those drugs because they're uppers, but, um, it's more the things that people do to get the drugs. Mm -hmm. And even if they're decriminalized, people still have to get them. And that's still illegal. Near as like it's, you can, it's not illegal to carry; it's legal, I assume, still to purchase it. Right. And so it's like there's not really a fine, there's not really a, a problem with carrying it; it's just getting it. So it's like I can have as much as I want now, but I still need the money to get it. And I want to see kind of how they plan to handle what could be a big issue, and maybe it won't, wouldn't be. Like I said, I hope it's not. Like I actually, because I, I actually hope that. It isn't a problem and crime in particular does go down and usage goes down and the number of individuals who are impoverished and addicted to what is it, schedule one drugs, um, schedule two drugs, those kinds of things, uh, stop becoming addicted to them and get their lives together and, you know, grow up, become functional adults. The men stay with their spouses, their girlfriends and or boyfriends or whatever, have kids, adopt kids, raise kids who then in turn don't become criminals and drug addicts themselves because the odds are that'll happen. It's like very high mm -hmm. with, with single parents in particular, it's mostly single mothers. And so I don't want to see that, that cycle perpetuate itself. Um, and that's probably the thing that of all the stuff we've been talking about, that's actually the biggest worry I have is this will just create a situation where down the road things just get worse. That's my fear. Yeah. Um, I would love it if it, isn't the case be fucking great 
Yeah, understandable. Yeah. If I had to bet, I would say that's not going to be the case, but certainly can't guarantee it. And that sure. is a is a, a a worthy fear. So. Yeah, How are we doing on time? Uh, we're at uh, two hours. Shazam! So uh, should maybe, we call it? Yeah, we can go and that was a a good line to end on a a deviation from the election, which I'm already sick of. Yeah, let's talk about drugs instead. Yeah, I yeah I actually All do right, want to so no I want to do a um, a more in depth podcast on drug use. It is very political. Apparently, apparently it is. Um, it's more personal for me, mostly because of my father. But um, I think that people have. Like you said, they have this uh, interesting view of uh, slippery slope view of drug use. And my experience doesn't bear that out at all. Um, Addiction to me is, I don't know if I necessarily, I don't know if it's actually classified as such, but it reminds me a lot of like a personality or mental disorder. Like it's something that is is innate within individuals and is stronger than others. Oh yeah, hundred percent. And it, it's it's a hard thing to deal with. Yep. And but it's something we have to deal with. And I, I don't shy away from it. I'm not scared of it. Um, I actually have addictive parts of my. I spent my entire life being afraid that I will be I will be addicted to things like my members of my family because mm-hmm. there's a large percentage of my family that has alcohol or drug problems, which is partly why I've never done hard drugs. Um, that and I'm epileptic, so I, I might actually die, but so that helps, but I don't think I would have done them even if I wasn't epileptic because I mean, you watch your dad go to prison when you're eight, you know, you... that leaves an impression. Yeah. And some people do drugs too, right? I didn't, I was like, I, I'm not doing them at all. And, um, but I think there's this misconception about like not only the slippery slope, but also the humanity of individuals who are addicted to drugs. Yeah. People are people. They're human. My dad's probably, and I know he has, actually done some really fucked up things in his life. Some things that to talk about on air would probably be very bad, you know, (laughs) because he's a drug addict. And drug addicts do some abhorrent things. They do some shameful things and embarrassing things and things that, a lot of things that are very illegal. Um, And they should pay for that. But that doesn't make them any less human. Um, I think the more people that talk about that and try and find ways to help it's good. So like yeah. I, I, I applaud to some degree Oregon doing what seems to be something that they feel is correct to help with that situation. That's my assumption is they're doing this to help the, the addicted community. Yeah. But it's not clear to me yet if what they're doing is going to have positive effects or not. But yeah, I think we're about to lose battery. We'll Wrap see. this up, buddy. All right, everyone. Goodbye. <laughs> Take care, everyone. This has been the Beyond Red and Blue podcast. Goodbye, everybody. Thank you.